talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hey guys, this is Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and I am so excited about this episode. I got the amazing opportunity to chat with best-selling historical fiction author Jane Healy. She's one of my favorite authors and has written The Saturday Evening Girls Club, The Beantown Girls, and The Secret Stealers, which is her latest release. It was actually just released last week. So Jane was awesome enough to sit with me and answer some of my questions and talk about her incredible book. So I hope that you guys enjoy. Here's my conversation with Jane. I'm Jane Healy. I'm the author of three historical fiction novels. Um, the most recent one is The Secret Stealers, which came out on April 1st, just a couple days ago. And the other two are The Beantown Girls and The Saturday Evening Girls Club. And I had always wanted to write fiction, but I ended up after college in high tech because I wanted to pay off my student loans and move out of my parents' house. <laughs> and um, But I started, when my daughters were born, I took a step back from the high-tech world and started freelance writing for magazines and newspapers and really anyone that would pay me. And so um, that that was when I really got serious about, well, Jane, if you're going to actually do this and, and write fiction, when are you going to do it? And um, I started taking it seriously and taking workshops. And I have a writer's group that I'm still close with from my years at my days at Boston Magazine and um, and, you know, going to conferences and doing all of the things. And the Saturday Evening Girls Club came out in 2017, but I really worked on it kind of in the fringes of my life for almost 10 years. Oh, wow. And then um, tr- tried to get it out maybe in like 2014, tried to get it published, got um, a lot of bites, but ultimately didn't happen. And then um, decided to give it one more shot. Uh, and, you know, I think one thing about publishing is, um, persistence and luck and timing definitely play a role. And, and uh, you know, it finally happened. So how do you choose the topics for your books? You know, that's a great question, because I'm, <laughs> I'm currently working on trying to work on the next one. And I it, it's it's really one of those things where if I find, a, you know, an article or a story in history, for instance, with the secret stealers, I came across an article, and it was this woman, Stephanie Check Rader, it was a Washington Post article from several years ago, and she was um, turning like 100 years old, and her neighbors had discovered that she had been a spy with the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA in World War II. She had been a spy in Poland. And that was one of those articles I filed away because I was like, well, that's kind of fascinating. I didn't even know that any American women were female spies in the war. So so that it's one of those things that like it, you have to have that spark of like if I find it fascinating, hopefully other people will find it fascinating if I write about it and and you're gonna live with the topic and the history for a long time working on the book. So you've got to really love it. You have to be passionate about it and really just completely fascinated by it. 
Right. Um, so I guess I was kind of curious about your your writing process. Do you do all your research first and then the story kind of falls into place or do you start writing and research at the same time? Um, you know, it's really, I try to do a really large bulk of research up front so that I kind of have a baseline knowledge of what I'm, you know, the time period, the people, the places. Um, but then I'm ultimately checking back as I'm writing, you know, I, I kind of organize my notes to check back my historical notes as I'm writing. And also the little things I have to kind of weave in as I'm writing the book, like little pop culture things, clothing, food, you know, restaurants and things like that. I, you know, that's kind of, that I kind of do as I go. Gotcha. I have read and love all three of your books. <laughs> so whatever I, I, so much. yeah, you're welcome. And when I originally reached out to you, I was like, I want to focus on the Red Cross Clubmobile Girls. And then I was like, I can't, I got to talk about all three books. Cause especially now I've read oh. the secret stealers. And so I couldn't just, Oh, thank you for reading. Yeah, no, it, it was great. <laughs> I love it. So do you mind if we just kind of touch on each of the books? Absolutely. So the the first book, would you mind talking about the the Saturday Evening Girls Club? Yeah, so the Saturday Evening Girls Club came about because I was writing um, a column on New England antiques for Boston Home magazine. And my editor asked me, you know, have you heard of the Saturday Evening Girls Club pottery? And I had not. And and I learned that it was a pottery created during the arts and crafts movement, which was the early 20th century. And it was created by this group of women, Italian and Jewish immigrant girls from Boston's North End, um, created this pottery shop to, because they had a club, Saturday Evening Girls Club, affiliated with it, and it was to support the club's activities. And I was really kind of blown away by the fact that I had never heard of it before. And I got born and raised in Boston. I, I still live here. And I was really intrigued. So I finished the article, but I couldn't stop thinking about like, well, who are those women and what, what else happened there? And, and so that's how the novel came about. I really um, delved into like the, the lives of the girls in, in the North End at the turn of the 20th century. They were kind of ahead of their time. They were um, progressive and entrepreneurial. And um, they had these mentors, Helen Starrow. If you ever go to Boston, Starrow Drive is one of the big um, highways into the city. And her, she was quite wealthy and she was kind of the benefactor for the club and supported these girls with college scholarships. Again, this was like 1908, which, so that was pretty extraordinary. Edith Gruyere and Edith Brown were two other founders of the club. Edith Brown was an artist. Edith Gruyere was the, the North End librarian. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the real life club, when you read about these women, it really changed the trajectory of their lives forever. They were much more upwardly mobile in terms of socioeconomically. And um, so, so yeah, that's, that's how that story came about. Yeah. One of the really fascinating parts was just that, you know, the, the women in the story come from Italian and Jewish families that had very, very strict traditions and just kind of breaking those gender norms, you know, wanting to be educated and, um, you know, just seeking these other things and breaking out of those traditions and, uh, you know, just those dynamics with their families and everything was really fascinating. Yeah, like arranged marriages was a thing yeah. still. And um, and another thing that I thought was really interesting was that because these were both, these Jewish and Italian young women were born and raised in America, they were first generation Amer- 
born here. And so they, they formed friendships, kind of across cultural friendships that their parents didn't, not because they didn't really want to, but because of language barriers and things like that. So that was really interesting to me too, that they, they did become such close friends from pretty different backgrounds culturally. Right. Yeah. And the friendships that you tie into these books are just strong female friendships are, I think, hugely important to to young females and well, any female, I guess. But um, that's one thing I really appreciate about your books. Oh, thank you. So the, the first book that I actually read of yours was your second book, The Beantown Girls. And I was blown away. I was so fascinated by just the story. Oh, thank you. Um, so do you mind kind of just going into what the book was about? Yeah, so the Beantown Girls came about because I had, you know, been trying to figure out my, you know, the Saturday Evening Girls Club did well enough that my publisher was looking for another project for me. And I wanted to write, I was, I've always been fascinated with World War II, like a lot of people. My grandfather was a firefighter in on the Navy ships in World War II off the coast of Africa and, and um, Europe. And, and so I, I thought, you know, I wanted to World War II, but like you said, these books, I wanted to write about a group of women. I wanted to, to be a female-centric novel again. And I thought, I found a picture of these four women standing in a field in the UK, and they were American, and, and they were wearing uniforms that I had never seen before. And it said, you know, Red Cross Club Mobile Girls, um, I think it was 1944, Leicester, England. And I had never heard of the word Clubmobile. I didn't know who these girls were. And so that kind of sent me down the path of find, learning about the Red Cross Clubmobile program, which was a program that started to boost morale for the troops in World War II. Um, you know, the military went to the Red Cross and said, you know, you have all these um, amazing clubs in the major cities at the different theaters of operation, but we need more for the guys at the front. What What do you think you can do? And so they came up with the idea of Red Cross clubs on wheels that would be staffed by three American women who would serve coffee, donuts, and smiles, to quote them, um, to the front, to the guys at the front. And it was, it, it's so interesting. The, the more I read, the more I realized, like, on the surface, it sounds like kind of this light and fluffy easy job but when you read the the accounts that the of the things that these women went through and and what they meant to these guys it's just it was extraordinary and so that that was one of those th- things the more I learned the more I was fascinated and then I was like I have I have to write about these women and what were the the requirements for the the women that were chosen you know, it was really prestigious to get selected to be a Red Cross Clubmobile girl. They only chose one out of six applicants in the U.S. They did a big recruiting campaign, but then in the end, they only chose one out of six. And they had to be, and again, this is the 40s, 19, they had to be college educated and over 25 years old. And they preferred, they had some work experience. And the reason for all of that is, you know, they, they the guys in the field, the general infantry they'd be dealing with were usually... 18, 19, 20. So I think they wanted women who are mature, who were educated, who could handle themselves around hundreds and hundreds of, of soldiers. Um, so I think that was one of the reasons. They also were looking for outgoing personality. They they had to be physically fit. And that was more because it was just a grueling job. They were on their feet 14 hours a day. They had to lug like huge tins of lard and t- things of flour everywhere. So um, so yeah, they had to be in good shape too. 
like you mentioned, it's it started out as kind of this cutesy concept, you know, that it was a Dunkin' Donuts on wheels or something. I'm not sure, but yeah. And it was scoffed at a little bit by, you know, as a distraction for the soldiers that wasn't welcome by everybody, um, became this much bigger thing. Do you think that they realized whenever they signed up the the magnitude of what they would end up doing? Um, I think most of them did not. I don't think I think they were kind of really proud and happy to serve their country, but a little naive of what they were getting themselves into. And and that was clear from um, some of the diaries and letters I read when they land, you know, they, they went to training in DC for several weeks, and then they went over to London for some additional training. And, you know, when they arrived in London, the city was still constantly being bombed. They had to, you know, have drills and wear helmets. And every night they had to have two girls stand on the roof of the kind of dormitory style buildings they were staying in to, to watch out for the pilotless bombs that were coming into the city. And then if there were any coming in, they had to knock on everyone's door, ring a bell, and everyone slept in the basement that night and just hope the building wasn't bombed. And mm-hmm. I think that it, there was definitely some shock and some PTSD at first. You know, the, the, some of the girls talked about having the shakes because of, they just couldn't get used to <laughs> being surrounded by, you know, buildings being bombed all the time. Um, but then, you know, like anything, they adapted and adjusted, you know, and and it was certainly much harder work than they anticipated. But a lot of them, of course, they complained about some of the aspects of the job, but they really were so proud and so happy to serve their country in this way. They obviously did. A, I don't want to give away anything too much in the book, but they obviously did a lot more than just serve coffee and donuts to soldiers. I mean, they were literally on the front lines. Can you explain some of the other accomplishments or the important things that they ended up doing while they were over there besides just boosting morale? Yeah, I think that, you know, they really became like, um, you know, almost social workers and big sisters to a lot of these men. And, you know, I, I often get the question too, did they, were they really allowed to, on the front lines of the war? And I, and, and they were actually allowed more access to the front lines than most soldiers and to press. They, they let them get to the front lines to, to serve the troops. And they, they, I mean, they, when I say that though, they did have an escort, they had a Jeep escort that would, so they wouldn't get stuck behind enemy lines, but that, that happens sometimes too. I mean, particularly in the book, I talk about the battle of the bulge and, you know, the Americans were really taken by the surprise. The allies were taken by surprise when that battle started. So the lines, the front lines were changing all the time. And, um, and so the girls ended up, you know, a couple of them ended up trapped a couple of the clomobiles behind enemy lines for some time. But yeah, they really, they became like social workers and, and therapists and, um, and really just took on such a larger role than it seems on the surface. And there were several of them that were ended up dying, correct? In the war, yes. So out of um, out of the fifty eight Red Cross women that um, died in World War II, thirteen of them were clubmobile girls, and it was really just in the kind of accidents that happened during wartime. One of them was in a hospital that was bombed, and so she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, another one, it was a small plane, a single engine plane crash, going from the UK to the continent. So just things like that. And did they receive any sort of recognition or award for their service? 
Some of them did. They they did receive bronze stars and, and various um, commendations from the military. They did not receive military benefits, which definitely was a sticking point for some of them um, when they got out. And as they got older, they felt like they, they should have been the recipient of some of those military benefits after what they went through. Have you had the opportunity to speak with any Clubmobile girls? Um, or do you know if any of them are, are still alive? There is, um, I, there, I think there's a three or four still alive okay. and two of them celebrated their hundredth birthdays recently, um, which is pretty amazing. But I, you know, I had, I had a ton of primary source material in the, in the form of diaries and letters. And I just, I felt like I had enough and I knew that these women were, if there were any, any of them were still alive, they were pretty elderly. So I didn't want to kind of intrude, you know, because I, I, I think people get nervous sometimes if you interview them and then they're like, oh, you're going to write about me in this book. You know, I just didn't want, um, you know, I, if I hadn't had enough um, research material already, I probably would have tried to reach out, but I, I didn't. But I have heard from, you know, I do, I actually have been doing a lot of presentations to different Red Cross groups around the country. So um, I have heard from relatives and friends of these of these women um one I got a letter from one man who his mom had passed away but it was this amazing letter about her time as a Red Cross clubmobile girl in World War II and how he used to come down in the morning before the rest of the family was up and have coffee with her and she used to tell him these amazing stories and her stories really mapped with what my uh, what the girls and the Beantown girls had gone through it was like, like I mean it was her she definitely must have popped up in my research somewhere because her experiences were so similar to the book huh that's amazing yeah and when I read this I was just blown away I was like how have I never heard of these women yeah. And and so then after I read the book, I started trying to do some research and look up some more information. And there's really not much out there. And which was really, really disappointing to me. Why do you think that there isn't more talk about what these what these women did? I think a, there's a couple of th- reasons. I think one is, it was kind of a niche program. It was relatively small. So over the course of the war, there was only a 1000 women total who were Red Cross Clubmobile girls. So I think it's that as opposed to like the Wax and the Waves, which had like thousands of women serve. So I think it's that part of it is just a smaller program, but also because historically, like, you know, historians document what they think is important, what they think is important to history. And this is a lesser known story that just was not deemed that important at the time. You know, I think that we're in this great place now with all a lot of these stories are coming to light I was thinking of like hidden figures and and different nonfiction and fiction books about how women served in the war but um for a while it just wasn't deemed important to preserve it for history just so sad because like I said it was just a really fascinating story and I just wanted to learn so much more about them so I guess kind of moving on to your most recent book, which I just finished, and it's just another fascinating read, uh, The Secret Stealers. Can you, you share about that? Yes. Yeah, so it's about um, the women of the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was a precursor to the CIA, but it also weaves in some of the stories of the women of the SOE, which was the British counterpart to the OSS, and some of the women of the French resistance. and. Um, it's, you know, it's 
I, I took a lot of different historically accurate stories and weaved them into a fictionalized story. The protagonist is Anna Kavanaugh, who is recruited by the o for the OSS by a family friend who was who founded the OSS, General William Donovan, and um, and she takes the job working with, for him in D.C. and then really learns what's going on and what they're doing because it was very hush hush secret organization, and she is determined to. Um, to serve overseas, which is what a lot that was those were really coveted positions. A lot of women wanted those positions, but not a lot were chosen. Yeah, this was another just incredible book about tough ass ladies that and these amazing <laughs> friendships and just like really just breaking boundaries and norms. And it's it's just so empowering to read. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just I, I love that that is a common thread throughout your books. So where do you get the bulk of your your research when it comes to these these topics? You know, it really varies. I got lucky with the Red Cross Club, with the Beantown Girls, because um, one of them along, I, I found about a half dozen memoirs online, and they were, most of them are out of print, but I was able to track them down. And then um, I had worked with the Schlesinger Library for Saturday Evening Girls Club, because they had some archive materials from the club. And that is... Um, uh, library of research library at Harvard. I, I live like eight miles from Harvard University, and it's all, it's dedicated to American women's history. So they had stuff for Saturday Evening Girls. I didn't have high expectations that they would have much about the Red Cross Clubmobile Girls, but somewhere along the way, one of the Clubmobile Girls must must have gone to Radcliffe or had a relationship with them because they had it was like hitting the lottery. They had like thirteen boxes of letters and diaries and pictures and recipes and donut tips and like just amazing, um, amazing amount of research. And that, that bulk of research at Schlesinger really gave me my story, um, especially the women who, who served in Europe because they were just beautiful letter writers and diary keepers. And, and so that's where I got that information. The um, Secret Stealers was interesting because you know, as you said, the Clubmobile Girl program, you can only find so much out there about about that program. And same with the Saturday Evening Girls Club. But um, when when you're talking about the OSS and the SOE and the French Resistance, I mean, there are classes taught, there are books and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books, if not thousands of books about it, about Occupied Paris. Um, and then they declassified the OSS records in 2008. So I was able to get access to those. Um, the personnel files. Um, so I, I could still be researching now because there's just still, there's so much out there, but, um, but I felt like at some point you have to kind of say, okay, I have, I have enough. Um, one of the most valuable things for me for the secret stealers was in October, 2019, when I just started really digging into the writing of the novel, um, my husband and I went to Paris for five days and, because I knew that Paris was almost going to be like another character in the book. It was going to be a big part of the book. So we went and I had been there, but I wanted to go there specifically with the book in mind. And I found a um, historian there, Nigel Perrin. He is a professor. He's a British, British guy, but lives in Paris. He's a professor and he gives these walking tours. Um, and so I scheduled one with him and we spent the entire day walking all over the city, you know, seeing a lot of the buildings that are in the novel, um, talking about some of the 
specific stories of these women of the SOE and men of the SOE and OSS. And, um, and he really, that trip was so important to this novel. It really, um, a couple of the things that I discussed with him that he shared with me kind of changed the shape of the story and helped me really nail down that kind of arc of the story. So that was, that was completely, that was amazing. And then how much of your, like the, the characters and events are based on actual historical events and people? Like, is that something that's really important for you to kind of tie in? Yes, definitely. I think that, you know, even the characters that are totally fictional, like Anna, the protagonist in Secret Stealers, are, she's a, kind of a composite of a lot of the different women I read about in my research. So yeah, I, yeah, I mean, the historical detail and, and the facts are just so important. And I, I wanted to make this more of a spy thriller than, you know, but I wanted to stick as close to the facts as I possibly could. You'd, you'd mentioned World War II, which your most recent, the I guess the Beantown Girls and the Secret Stealers are both based in World War II. And I have a big fascination with that time. And we're at that point in history where there are truly just a handful of people that served or were even living at that time. Those firsthand accounts are just something we no longer have access to. And so it's so important for the accounts like that that you've written to be able to kind of move those moments forward, you know, for future generations. And I just yes. think it's so important that you're that you've written about these things. And um, so just as a kind of a history person, and especially that era, I just appreciate that so much. And, um, you oh, know, thank you. No, that's what no, I think that's true. I think, I'll, you know, Every few months, you see another obituary of a you know World War II vet who has passed on because there's just not many of those guys and women left. You know, so I think it's really important to preserve those stories, especially now. And and I think that's part of the reason in fiction and nonfiction right now there's such a fascination because we're losing that generation and and you know everyone's kind of wants to preserve it. Right. Um, so would you? consider writing another genre or do you kind of want to stick with the historical fiction yeah I mean I'd never say never but I like I I always say I think I'm going to stay in my lane (laughs) um and I like using history as a jumping off point um you know it's I, I I joke with my friends who write contemporary fiction I'm like like how do you even do that you just like make up some people and like move them around like at least like with history and research I have like a starting point for the story. Like, I don't know, I don't even know how I'd go about writing something contemporary or, um, you know, a different genre. But um, so, yeah, I'm happy where I'm at for now, if, I, if I'm lucky enough to write another book or a few. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'd never say never about writing in a different genre. Are there any um, other events or time periods or any, any of anything else that kind of is on your radar that you would absolutely love to write about someday? I, I think that, you know, there, there's a lot of stories that haven't been told about the Cold War era. I think that that would be really interesting. I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah, that's one for sure. Gotcha. So are you working on a new book? Can you 
Um, I am. I'm in the early stages of a new project and I'm so superstitious. I'm not going to share, <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, I, I am. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to share about your books and characters or anything else that you want to add? Yeah, no, the only thing um, I want to add is I, I'm doing, um, I have some upcoming web- webinars discussing the history behind the story of the Secret Stealers. They're free and open to all. And then I've started a monthly webinar series where I um, in- interview another historical fiction author about their latest release. So this month, I'm super excited. I'm interviewing Pam Janoff, who's like a rock star, New York Times bestseller about her new book coming out the woman with the blue star so that's on april 15th and and you can see find out all this on my website at janehealy.com okay and i i saw that you have the youtube page too correct yes yeah i do yeah so anytime you know i do another webinar we'll post those up there for people to watch as well okay and just kind of out of curiosity like who are some of the authors that that you enjoy reading or that kind of inspire you? Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of all over the map. I mean, in terms of historical fiction, I just mentioned Pam Janoff. She's amazing. Um, Marie Benedict is another one who I think is a really strong Kate Quinn um, in the historical fiction genre. In, I, you know, growing up, I loved Madeline Langle, A Wrinkle in Time is like a life-changing mm-hmm. novel for me when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, I want, I, cause I, totally thought identified with the main character Meg and wanted to be her. Um, yeah. I, I, and I'm trying to think recently at V.E. Schwab, my daughter's really into um, fantasy and sci-fi. And um, so we, we both just read the invisible life of Addie LaRue, which I, I thought was so just unique and beautifully written. Um, just, I, I love when people kind of break genres and, and create something that's like totally out of the box. And that's, I thought the invisible life of, of Addie LaRue was that for sure. Very cool. All right. Well, I think that's all I have. Well, I'm glad we can finally do this. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it so much. And I've been looking forward to this and I look forward to upcoming books. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. And please keep in touch and thank you for reading. Yeah, you're very welcome. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care, Jane. Take care. All right. Bye. Huge thank you to Jane for taking time out of her super busy schedule to chat with me about her books and her writing process. If you want more information about Jane or her books, go to janehealy.com. You can also find her on Instagram and Facebook. So check them out. Read her books. They're amazing. And if you want to support Know What I Heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Five-star ratings and amazing reviews are always appreciated and help us out a lot. If you have any questions, comments, show ideas, anything at all, feel free to send an email to knowwhatiheard at gmail.com can be found on Facebook at Know What I Heard Podcast. Follow us on Instagram. Tell your friends. Send out a chain letter. I don't know. But thank you so much for listening. Please stay safe and healthy. And until next time, hey, know what I heard? <laughs>